This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Ivor McLeod, CFO of Athesis, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 633. So finance, my challenge is how do I help on this mission of like pushing the product forward such that we get faster, cheaper and easier for a wide range of customers, right? So, so the things I focus on is, are we growing? Like, so are we getting new users? Are we, and are they, tra- are they, are they putting volume through TransferWise? So like, we know we're being used and useful if customers are putting, when I say volume, the amount of money people are sending across borders, right? Um, the second thing I then worry about is what's happening to price, right? So not just revenue, but price. The so price times volume gives you revenue, but price, is it going down, right? So many, many CFOs will be like, what is he talking about? Why is he, why is he worried about price and revenue going down? Surely you want to drive this up. Well, actually, no, because uh, if we're going to be successful in the future, we um, we know that we need to get cheaper over time, like, because we, we believe it can be done and we believe it should be done and we can solve this problem of hidden fees in, in as $200 billion gets paid to banks every year. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's episode, we speak with Matt Breyer, CFO of TransferWise, a $3.5 billion fintech that specializes in the money transfer and global remittance space. The travel industry may be struggling amidst the pandemic, but TransferWise still expects to turn an annual profit in 2020. We speak to CFO Matt Breyers about this intriguing fintech startup and his unusual finance career journey after this. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt. Your need to evolve. Your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, visit us at Workday.com. Hello, we're speaking with Matt Breyer, CFO of TransferWise. Matt, welcome. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. Matt, uh, as always, as you might know, we're going to begin by asking you to look backwards for us and share with us uh, some of the experiences you feel prepared you for a CFO role. Go ahead and tell us about yourself. So I am um, I'm I'm calling you calling in here just from outside London in the UK. I grew up in, in London. Um, I actually studied engineering uh, back at university many years ago, but I ended up in strategy consulting like many of the other engineers did at the time rather than doing a, something useful in engineering. But we, um, so I spent probably eight, eight, eight years or so, seven or eight years in strategy consulting, then also a period of time in um, kind of doing consulting inside financial services companies. And um, I guess a couple of things like, but the first thing I, out of strategy consulting, you're always being groomed to be a, a, a general manager or a CEO, and like, how do you get there? And everyone's like, uh, 
it's the righteous path that everyone should really follow. And when I was reflecting on what I was spending my time doing is I was um, as a consultant in a like a, an ex Bainey working in a in a big bank. I was I was basically going around all of these teams and uh, and, and typically ending up in a fi- kind of speaking with the finance team saying, can you give me some data? And um, and they'd spent three or four months slaving away to produce this data. Then I would spend about half an hour turning this into a slide and a fancy chart, kind of turning it 90 degrees on its head and then um, coming up with an insight. And basically, everyone thought I was wonderful, <laughs> which um, which was kind of great and quite cheap, uh, cheap work to like have an impact in the business. But it certainly frustrated the um, the finance organization. And it also frustrated me that this uh, this information was typically quite easily available and 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 there and useful but wasn't being uh wasn't being made easily available to to the folks that that need really needed it so um so instead of continuing what i wanted to do or even following in this path to being a um a ceo or one of these great uh, general managers i realized that maybe i should go and become a cfo or at least work in a finance organization and try and try and help build a finance organization that could um do this for themselves rather than get annoyed with strategy consultants hanging around and and getting famous off their hard work, basically. So, um, so I kind of jumped over the fence, and uh, and at that point, I joined Google as uh, they gave me an opportunity to join their finance organization, and it, and it all really went from there. And um, then the the other kind of story I'd share was um, kind of I wanted to work in finance, but I also was quite specific around the kind of company I wanted to work in. So back in back in the mid kind of two thousand and five, I think it was, I was working for a a credit card company, and um. We wanted to like work out ways to be something else than a credit card company. We started uh, looking at, and I was in the strategy or corporate development team, if you like, and um, we found a way to, to 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 actually sell products that our customers might might want. Uh, but typically, we started focusing on customers that we hadn't been able to help with credit or needed a, or wanted more help. So guess what? You know, back in the mid two thousands, we started uh, building a subprime mortgage company, or at least a broker giving subprime loans, and. Um, it was very exciting. It was a very profitable business back then, as uh, as we all know. Um, but I went home one weekend, and I um I spoke to my parents, and my mum asked me. She said, "So, so Matthew," she said, uh, "What is it you're up to these days? You know, your aunt, auntie Pat asked me, uh, well, what is it you do?'" And I explained it to her, and she she answered in one word, which was, um, "Really?" <laughs> like, and uh, I was like, "Well, we lend money to these people that you know don't don't really get it, and we charge them like quite a lot of interest, so it tends to be quite profitable." And uh, and just the disappointed look on her face was um, kind of questioned all of, the, all of the business books I've been writing, reading, and uh, and I uh, so I went and resigned. And I and I realised I had a real trouble reconciling profitability. Unfortunately, I didn't go and short all of the stocks as subprime because I kind of saw this. I reconciled that surely, actually, it's not just my mum. This is like the regulators and the investors, and this thing's going to be a house of cards. But um. So I guess TransferWise is my anti-subprime. And like when I saw TransferWise as an opportunity worker, I mean, sure, it's a great business and it's, it was clearly going to be successful um, without me. But it, it, it really, the way it focuses on customers and the way it focuses on being fair and transparent and doing the right thing and putting customers first and then profitability quite a long way down the list um, actually was like, uh, you know, like this is actually a bit of therapy for me here. And I, I'm kind of writing one of my earlier wrongs, if you like. So um, so these are the kind of story as to like if people say, how did I end up in a finance job in a in transferwise? Like they're the two two kind of um, two things that come to mind. Wow, that's a great story. We want to find out about transferwise. But first, I just want to uh, highlight a few parts of your career that you you've already mentioned, really. One yeah. is, is that 
you you did uh, have some really interesting consulting experiences, I know. And just to mention the two firms, which are, you know, firms that people would generally know, L.E.K. Consulting, but Bain and Company as well, where you were both times you were there, each uh, company three years. It seems like everywhere you were, you did make an investment of time. And I'll also point out <laughs> that uh, the experience you just shared about the subprime venture that you you uh, you left in 2005. So it was clearly before everything started to cave in. So yeah. uh, I, I, we will take you as a man of your word that this was not where you wanted to uh, to spend your, your, your career time. Um, also, if you wouldn't mind, I'm curious, uh, again, for uh, finance folks, I think we're going to see more of your experience, types of experiences on people's resume as we move forward um, in finance. And that is, uh, the cult consulting aspect of it is always interesting, sort of that relationship that uh, consultants have with their customers. They, they uh, And of course, we see this in finance where uh, CFOs and finance teams are paying very close attention to customer relationships. And, yeah. and again, just to emphasize, that's really the essence of consulting, understanding that customer. And then the other piece of your bio, which I thought was interesting, is, uh, of course, when you land at Google, um, and that you, you didn't give us too much detail there, I think, but, um, could, could you clarify that for us where it was it a part of the finance, traditional finance function at Google or what was that exactly? So a uh, good, good question. So I joined the, uh, the European finance team in Google. So the way Google is, is works is it's a, it's, um, it's a, it's a user first organization and always, always has been. Um, so they build a product and then they have, um, they monetize that with ads, right? Uh, primarily back in 2012, they were a search business with a small display and YouTube business. So essentially, the the kind of the finance organization outside of the valley, outside of Mountain View, is really focused on supporting the essentially the the revenue or the ad sales organization, right? So essentially, the way Google works is you know it's got around 15 to 20 thousand people back then around the world who are working with advertisers, agencies, helping them get the best out of Google from a from an advertising perspective. Essentially, all of Google's revenue back, uh, you know, even today is primarily driven by ads, as we know. So the role of the finance was really like in classic finance language would be like an FP&A or financial planning and analysis role, where um, the core role is to really understand what was happening in, um, in, the, in the organization uh, from a revenue performance and a margin performance perspective. Like, and, um, and then helping operate the organization that was then driving a lot of that revenue. So essentially, it was a, a heavily into forecasting, analytics, um, budgeting for the organizations that we were working for, but also the regional offices that we had. Um, and um, but it was a really, really analytical role. So there wasn't a hell of a lot of accounting in there. Um, it was really more the kind of I call it the fun side of finance, of the FP&A side of finance, which was a great transition for me out of really the kind of internal consulting side of life. And um, so it was really cool. Like we got to. Um, we were spending a lot of time really understanding like what was driving revenue, even down to the keyword searches that were like, uh, the, and then and then the great thing that we could do and the kind of consulting skill set, if you like, was, you know, the UK was actually, and I was looking after the UK to start with, is pretty much the most advanced market in Google's uh, in Google's um, setup. Like the 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 kind of e-commerce activity, the advertisers and the users in the UK are probably three years ahead of anywhere other country in the world, including the US. So there's quite a lot of focus on the UK as to what was happening and how can they learn 
from that. So there was really a, my, my role was to provide a, a hotline back into product in Mountain View to say, look, this is what's happening. Like, can you c try to inform the product from a strategy perspective as to like, um, what could they, what could they build that was more useful? You know? it, was, it, was, it was a real fun role, real fun role. So I latched on to the words, um, what was driving revenue? what you know trying to understand better what was driving revenue and that's a conversation of course we're having with so many cfos with very different backgrounds from yours but having that insight into the google organization and how they're uh how they take a look at revenue and and what drives it uh would be uh, something much coveted i would think by many uh finance executives today so Let's jump to uh, TransferWise, and you, you hinted at us that there was an opportunity to redeem yourself from your early <laughs> earlier banking experience. Curious what all of that might mean, but let's just open by asking this sort of blanket question. What is TransferWise? What does it do, and, and what are its offerings? So TransferWise, um, we provide the easiest, fastest, and cheapest way to send money around the world. If you want to make a, a payment in dollars and you want to send money to London to maybe you want to send me some send some money to me or or receive some money from me, Transferwise is going to offer that um, as as fast as as fast as it can be, um, super cheap and really easily. So if you were to use your bank, for example, uh, you might go in and use a Wells Fargo or a, a JP Morgan Chase. You'd send the money. It might it may cost you uh, two or three or 4% in the spread that you'll pay. You wouldn't know this because the bank wouldn't tell you. You'd send $1,000 and the bank would charge you probably $50 uh, without knowing you in the spread. Um, it might take three or four days to turn up and it'd be a bit of a pain in the ass because you probably have to go into your branch to do this, provide more ID. Whereas TransferWise, our mission is to, is, to, um, is to solve that problem by sending it as fast as possible. Um, so 30, almost 30% 30 of our transfers now are instant in that they um, they arrive available in the recipient's bank account within 20 seconds. Um, we're somewhere between six and eight times cheaper than the bank. Like, so for example, you might pay 30, 40, 50 basis points instead of three, four, 5% to send the money, uh, depending on the route. And then it's all really easy. It's through an app. Um, and, and it's, and, and this really started like eight, nine years ago. Um, when, um, when our two founders out of Estonia, had, you know, had this exact problem and, um, and they were, so to give you an insight as to how this works, um, we, um, Christo and Tavert, you know, were both in London, but they were trying to move money. One was trying to move money from Estonia to London, and the other was trying to get money from London to Estonia, right? And they're both trying to do it through a bank, and it was just really painful. So what they solved was that Christo would put money into Tavert's London bank account, and Tavert would put his money into Christo's Tallinn bank account. They get they work out the rate that they saw on Google. It would happen pretty instantly because local payment systems, just like in the US, they are now are pretty quick. Um, and uh, and everyone was happy, right? So they were like, right, let's scale this. So they scaled that to be transferwise. So if you dial that forward today, like um, we have eight million customers, we move four billion pounds or you know five billion dollars a month of money. Um, we charge you know somewhere between thirty basis points and less than one percent for on average. We charge differently by route. Um, we're very clear. We charge every route differently. Um, I said up to thirty percent, twenty eight percent. I think it was last quarter was instant and. Um, and we try and just do this really fairly and transparently. So like, we will tell you exactly how much you're going to get charged and we'll help you compare that against what you're being charged by your bank. Um, and it's working pretty well. We help um, people. Um, so, you know, we move about one in 20 dollars that move around the world between people is now on TransferWise, which is pretty cool. Um, we do it all over the world, um, but we also help small businesses. And um, so that's really the mission we set up and, and we want to get cheaper and cheaper. So we ultimately, we want to be free. And um, 
yeah, our mission is that we save we save our customers over a billion pounds every month. And uh, every year, sorry, we save over a billion pounds a year. So so it's um it's pretty it's pretty uh it's a pretty rewarding experience. Well, thank you for the overview. And uh, you land there in 2015, so it's been about five years now. And we always like to ask a question as far as thinking back when you first arrived. What did you need to do to begin moving your team in the direction you wanted? What was that finance team yeah. that you had at that place in time? And, and think about where it is today and the parts you had to add. Tell us a little bit yeah. about what your uh, priorities were when you first arrived. Yeah, so give you a flavor of the size of the business. So um, just to set back, you know, we had we had less than a million customers then, probably five, six hundred thousand customers. Uh, we now got eight, eight million or so today. We um we had about 300, 350 uh, wises that we call them or transfer wise employees, and we're now at two thousand two hundred, I think. So you know the business has gone on a journey, but but way back then, like I think finance was finance existed and finance was in uh, you know pretty good shape, I think, for a startup. So the team had done, the t and the team hired me. So there was a team of five, I think it was back then, and um and the, you know I remember they interviewed me and, and then I joined and so I didn't have to like I wasn't. Um, I wasn't solving a, a train smash, if you like. You know, I was coming into, a, you know, we were doing monthly reporting. We were accounting. We'd had relatively clean accounts. You know, the team had done a pretty amazing job, given how small the team was for what they were. But um, so I tried to work out, like, okay, so, but we're all crazy busy. Everyone was creaking, big bags under their eyes. And, like, the, the common theme was, like, the business is going in seven different directions at breakneck speed. Like, how are we going to, you know, their, their main focus was survive the next month or survive the next two, three months. And cash and transferwise at the time was burning money, not creating money. You know, so that there, there was really like two fundamental. I remember sitting down with the team and said, "Right, we're going to worry about two things," and um, and uh, those two things were like, "Don't run out of money," and don't, and basically, um, uh, don't cock it up. Or I might have used a slightly stronger word than that, but um, so so the, the the don't run out of money was like kind of. We're continuing to grow really fast. Like you know, try and be as prop sustainable and well managed as we can. And if we need cash to fund that, you know, my job was to go and raise capital, right? Like a lot of CFOs in early stage businesses. And then on the don't cock it up, as it were. Excuse my language. Was um was really um you know, there's a bunch of things that need to happen in finance. You know, you need to pay people salaries. You need to look after the money that's in the bank. You need to get the accounting right. Like as soon as your accounting starts to wobble and your reporting is wrong, you know, your auditors, your uh, partners, your regulators, you know, all start to lose trust. So, you know, finance really just, we had a job to do to maintain the trust of all the regulators and auditors and partners that were giving us permission to do what we wanted to do, really. So, um, so I had those two dimensions, right? And I think if you read any CFO manual today, like no one's ever going to call these two things out. But fundamentally, I believe still, like the job of a CFO is pretty much helping those two things. It's just explained in a little bit more um, nuanced uh, jargon, if you like. So, um, so what did that mean? Like, we had to kind of wrestle down. You know, we had good monthly reporting, but it was just a literally a ten-line PNL with a cash number at the bottom. It wasn't there wasn't a great deal more of this, and it happened once a month, kind of twenty days after the month it closed. Right. So, we were like, all right. That's not telling us a huge amount about what's going on. So we tried to translate that into like, what's our unit economics? How much money are we making or losing on given transactions? And then making sure that we were making smart and sensible pricing decisions, right? 
we're trying to understand how well are we growing? What's driving the growth in volume and you know, the amount of money people are moving and revenue? So trying to really break down that, like what's driving the cash generation or cost of the business? And then trying to help the, not the finance organization, but the actual the business make decisions that kind of make, move that in the right direction and not the wrong direction, if you like. And, um, and then really like, as you saw, I, I grew up in consulting, not in accounting, right? So I had to quickly work out like, who of the folks in the team, like how are we going to build like a, an accounting system and a, um, and, a, and a robust machine that can help, our, um, help us kind of get good data and essentially good reliable reporting as the business kind of triples, ten, we're 10 times bigger now. And, um, and, you know, just a few people have done an exceptional job on there. And I can't, I, 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 if you, you know, I hold my hands up, I'm doing it right now to say, you know, that my only role there was um, to, to kind of give the team the mandate to do it. And, you know, some pretty amazing people did some, some, uh, some, some incredible work uh, to, to build, a, build a piece of infrastructure that we're now, you know, lucky to have that, that gives us all of our accounting. And um, so, so really, like, those were the two dimensions. And, you know, my skill set in consulting was definitely you know, in the former, like, you know, monitoring the performance of the business and making solid decisions in that direction. And um, my challenge, if you like, uh, what I found hard, and I think would maybe scare, could have scared me off, frankly, was how do I, how do I trust myself? Or how do I kind of, how do I do the, the latter, like the accounting and the processes? And some of my team would probably say, well, we still worry about that, Max, you're still not amazing at those things. But it's, um, you know, I, I, that's where as a, a leader, you just need to hire good people and, uh, and, and kind of, um, and kind of learn from these good people. Really. So. Yeah, no, you, you echo uh, the comments of many uh, finance leaders who tell us about areas that they weren't necessarily experts in, and they had to rely on others. And uh, that's part of leadership, we know, um, assessing others and, and building those types of relationships. But um, you, you yeah. mentioned raising money. I'm curious. Can you give us maybe uh, just a short history of the capital structured? Is this uh, where is it today? Yeah, that's a good, good question. So we have done. Um, so when I joined, we were just we just done before we joined. We'd done our Series C, which is when Andreessen uh, Ben Horowitz uh, from Andreessen Horowitz Investor joined the board. Um, we I executed Series D shortly after I joined, three or four months after I joined, which was. Uh, uh our was the capital raise and then our series e which was in early 2017 we raised another i think 65 million dollars we didn't uh we also that was the last time we raised any money uh for, for primary capital you know like so putting money onto the balance sheet so since then we did and at the same time in our series e we, we also did a secondary element to that fundraise um and then in 2019 we did another secondary and then just in the last, uh, well, in the last month, we've announced um, our third secondary. But I haven't raised any capital for the business, um, well, in three years now, which is, um, so, so rather my focus has been on uh, from day one was like, how do we build a business that's uh, raising its own money rather than relying on venture capital? And um, we've, raised, we've raised quite, we've raised some capital, but we've, we've um, I think a nice stat is that we've, uh, We've only uh, we've burned way less than half the capital that we generated. We raised, so we still got most of it, and uh, and since then, customers have actually been generating quite a lot of cash. We've been generating cash since twenty seventeen. So, 
now that it's uh, 2020, we're in this kind of unique environment, I realize, but want to find out about what you're trying to measure today. What are some of the business dynamics you're seeking to better expose and measure? And uh, with your background, you know, looking into the pipeline, uh, trying to understand what's driving revenue, I think it, it would be an interesting discussion or question at least to ask you. What would you tell us? So I, I try and uh, Transwise has got a pretty strong mission and um, and it's uh, I uh, actually in all my time in consulting we spent a lot of time working with people work, driving mission statements and I and I can't honestly tell you that I believed in it back then but since joining Transwise it's kind of this uh, slightly religious uh, maniacal focus on mission which is which is runs deep and um, it's pretty amazing that so finance my challenge is how do I help on this mission of like uh, pushing the pushing the product forward such that we get faster, cheaper, and easier um, for a wide range of customers, right? So, so the things I focus on is: Are we growing? Like, so are we getting new users? Are we? And are they tra- are they are they putting volume through Transwise? So, like, we know we're being used and useful if customers are putting. When I say volume, the amount of money people are sending across borders, right? So, I worry about this. Uh, those those metrics. Um, the second thing I then worry about is what's happening to price, right? So not just revenue, but price. So price times volume gives you revenue, but price, is it going down, right? So many, many CFOs will be like, what is he talking about? Why is he, why does he worried about price and revenue going down? Surely you want to drive this up. Well, actually, no, because uh, if we're going to be successful in the future, we, um, we know that we need to get cheaper over time, like, because we, we believe it can be done and we believe it should be done and we can solve this problem of hidden fees in, in as $200 billion gets paid to banks every year. So I worry about price. In order to worry about price, you need to worry about unit cost, right? So the unit cost is all of our costs divided by the volume. And the way we price is we, we just charge a margin on top of our unit costs, right? So, um, so therefore, the insight that we need to be able to provide to the business is um, say, what is the unit cost and what makes up this unit cost? You know, unit economics would be called in, our, um, in, 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 in tech firms typically. And um, so we provide to every team on every route like what is the unit, what contributes each element of the unit cost and what are its drivers? Because everyone in TransferWise is hell-bent on driving down the price. But my role is to make sure that, um, that we do this, but we do it sustainably. So they can drop price, but only if they drop the unit cost. Does that make sense? It does. How, so, how, do, you, how do they know where they stand at any given time? Is there a way you're revealing this to the, the sales team or whoever you're, you're trying to keep in the clue, uh, clued in? Yeah, so the, so um, so there's a um, a couple of a pretty broad range of amazing analysts, both in finance uh, um, and across the organization. Where at the end of every month, we're able to generate at a root level and customer level what are our unit economics everywhere in the world, right? And we can, we can identify how those are trending and what are the drivers of those. And once we we make that transparent and available to all of the teams, they can then make decisions around like to what extent can they put prices down, right? Sometimes, unfortunately, they need to put prices up because they're not recovering their costs in the price. So this is a double-edged sword. If you want prices to go down and run a thin margin business, when you're not successful, you need to put them up. But um, we make that available. We don't make the decisions. It's really important, I think, here. Like um, We in finance don't make the decisions around where we drop price and what is price. We, we tell the teams where they can and where they should. But like it really frustrates me and worries me that, like, where finance leaders, the CFOs, end up making 
these kind of decisions and investment prioritization decisions when they're they're the people that are the furthest from all the customers, right? So um, so we we provide that data transparently to all the teams, and then frankly, like we provide that across the organization, and then these teams are answerable to their teams and the wider teams and their customers as to how we're doing it. We actually make it pretty transparent to our customers as well if you read any of our mission reports. So that's a really important thing that we monitor, and we we organize around that and um. And it's been fundamental to our ability to be um, profitable and sustainable and explain that to our customers. Then the next thing we look at is obviously that turns into a cash margin every month. And, and you know, just preserving a healthy level of cash in the business, not too much, not too little, and making sure that we're, we're looking after that. But fundamentally, it's, are we getting users? Is that translating into volume? And then are we serving that volume sustainably or profitably? One of the things we look at. And then, and then, the way I look, think about that is that we look at that for people, like personal customers, but then obviously we have small businesses. And then increasingly, we've got larger businesses and partners uh, that are using TransferWise. So we started just for people on an app. We now have um, 10,000 small businesses joining us every month to use us for their international banking, if you like, because we have multi-currency accounts that they can send and receive money. Um, but actually, we've built, exposed all of the infrastructure for TransferWise through an API, um, which basically means if you're a bank, and you're uh, you're not proud of your cross-border money proposition. You can scrap that and integrate TransferWise. So um, there are banks in the U.S., in Canada, in the U.K., all across Europe, Australia, that are now integrating TransferWise um, and offering TransferWise there. So that's all available through the API. So therefore, finance has got a role to make sure that those relationships are, are mutually beneficial um, and understand you know how that's set. So it's across the across the size of the market, making sure we're we're sustainable. If that makes sense. We've been speaking to finance leaders, some of which are real champions of transparency and supplying as much information to uh, to employees as possible. Others are, you know, far more uh, conservative in terms of how they share uh, the numbers. Are there likely to have been more times where you were uh, you regret it not sharing perhaps more information to to make something more visible, or uh, you regret it sharing? maybe too much information, which become a distraction of some kind. So what, what comes into my mind, I, I mean, I, I think in a, in a public company, there's a whole bunch of uh, constraints and challenges that, um, that come into that. I mean, we're, we're a private company, so we're not encumbered with some of these burdens. But, um, but essentially, um, I think rather than too much or too little, it's like, where do you confuse versus where do you clarify, right? And um, and it's very, very, I don't believe it's like more or less data helps confuse or clarify. It's just how you structure it, right? As to like why. So um, so we want to provide data that can be used to make, uh, like just providing data is pretty useless, right? Like big data or small data, it doesn't really matter if it's confusing, right? What we try and provide is a, a framework that helps people understand like what is a, sustainable price point like literally and that would be a margin that we would say so so it actually took us a long time to stand up in front of the teams and say let me explain to you why we need to have a profit a, a margin in our product right because if you just tell people and send an email saying we're gonna have this margin you know the the um the, the typical uh teams that are working in transferwise will just turn around to me and say why like i don't understand you just need to explain why and i'll accept it so you should explain this really really carefully um and you have to have a good reason. It's not just because we've got investors or greed or whatever this is. Like it needs to be logical why you'd have this uh, margin. 
How does it help customers? Um, once you've got that structure and then you've got a solid structure for like how we understand our economics, you can pump as much data through that as you want, as long as the framework is clear and what it's being used for. Like I typically think that if you're providing less data, it's probably because you don't want to confuse people. And the reason you'd confuse people is you can't really explain to people how to think about this. Right. So like, and it's just way more powerful. If I've got 2000 people thinking about this problem, we're just going to get a much better answer than if me and um, a few super smart, even super smart folks in finance are trying to solve this. We're just not going to solve this problem. So, um, so really we empower, we make as few decisions as possible in finance and empower the rest of the organization to make those decisions. And actually, that's not just on pricing. That's generally across all of TransferWise. We try and um, give people the data and in, the, and in public, they'll make better decisions. Yeah, interesting. You kind of highlight that fact that finance has this sort of deep insight into how data is digested by the rest of the organization and what helps it get digested and what obstacles might there be. Again, the, the structure, the structural insight to doing that, that's uh, uniquely finance. How am I doing? Am I overstating that? No, 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 that's exactly right. So I think like uh, it's quite, you have to be quite brave. Like the, the, the instinct in you is to want to tell people, this is how you need to think about this and this is the answer, right? Or just this is the answer because you don't really always want to like expose the underbelly of your logic because it could be frail, right? But actually, if you're if you're trusting of your peers, and I mean, why would you want to work in a company if you don't trust the people you work with? And that aside, but like you, if you're brave enough to say, this is my logic, give me some feedback on my logic, um, help me understand, this is how I want to think about this. And there's plenty of brighter people outside of the org than me, and they'll give me some feedback. Then once you've got this logic, you've got an aligned view across the company as to how to think about something. That's much better than saying finance says this year budgets are up 5% or down 5%, right? I mean, come on, like every company works like that and no one likes it, right? And um, so, um, so I think it's like, it's also just a much better way to get, is it consensus or buy-in or engagement to like make people think the problem through themselves rather than just take an answer. And um, so it takes more time, it takes a lot more energy, but like you just get a much better trusting outcome. And uh, like my biggest fear is someone says, oh, uh, why are we doing this? Oh, finance told us to. It's like, oh my, like that's the point at which I need to resign. So for the last five, six months, we've been asking finance leaders how they're responding to the pandemic, how it's uh, impacting their businesses. And, uh, I want to ask it a little differently, maybe for you. I'm, I'm more curious about how your response may have evolved over time and what will be the response going forward? Yeah, so um, so I guess like how, what, were, what were we thinking going through this? So, I mean, crikey, looking back on it now, like I, I, I'm, I kind of say this this past week that I think like everything in March was stressful, right? Like tying your shoelaces and like... Uh, everything in March was like pretty stressful. Like, so whatever we were doing was tough. We, we were incredibly fortunate at TransferWise in that like, we're, we're not a business that's like massively pro, pro exposed to COVID. Like we don't have a, we're not a retail business. We're not a travel business, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but as we went into the crisis, like we I mean, March was crazy for us. Like there's a lot of FX volatility. And when we see FX volatility, you see a lot of vol volume go up, but, but we knew that that was going to pass and 
we were we were trying to work out like so what is going to happen right so uh, just like any good cfo and i'm sure everyone you spoke to was like we just went into scenario planning right <clears throat> and it feels like we're we're just about coming out of that now <laughs> like so um i think we uh we just sat down and we said right you have a combination of like how bad could this get we genuinely don't know like we didn't know what was going to play out so like therefore you go down the road of like okay well like how bad does it need to get for us to be like have to like on the one hand like kind of pull in the uh pull in the purse strings and like act a bit more cautiously versus how bad does it need to get for us to like take some serious like uh different maneuvers right and um and we had this wonderful matrix of how deep and how how long this thing would go for and and um and we had all these scenarios and we were fortunate in that you know we'd you know back back from when we started we we've always held a good solid cash reserve at transferwise and, I, and my part of my my driving objective here is to just prepare transferwise for the unknown and this was the unknown right so you know back in we always said we'd hold like a year's worth of money in cash and the teams were always like why are we going to need a year's worth of money in cash like what kind of and like here we are right so um but luckily um luckily we were well financed um so really like we were just been observing every month and now transferwise is doing really well we've got we've actually got more customers joining us than we expected um, we see volumes really healthy back in you know really like in line with or consistent with what we'd have expected well before the this uh, crisis so you know our customers are still using us and joining us at a, at a faster rate than we expected so so now we've but we have been cautious you know like any no you know we were like this is definitely a time to to just be mindful of this from a cost perspective but also we were hiring a thousand people a year at peak last year it's just impossible to hire that many people when you can't meet them face to face as well so naturally this built some controls in place um but i would say like so that's what we decided but it certainly doesn't describe like what the experience was because all of what i've just described you could probably come to in the period of 24 hours but like the the really hard thing was um was explaining this to the team like we're a trans totally transparent organization right? when i say the team i mean the 2200 transwise people who'd suddenly moved home we're, we're a we're a young organization we're very mobile we totally moved home within uh you know i think the middle of march um but actually we had people working at home answering phone calls working off an ironing board it was pretty brutal for our teams right so we needed to like the role of leadership was to get on a team call every week and explain what was going on but we had to be brutally honest as well with what could come and um and striking the tone of we're going to be okay we've, we're well capitalized um we're going to be okay as a business but like we don't know what's coming and you know any any business we'd need to make we could need to make some tough choices rather than not signaling that we decided to say look if it got this bad we'd do this if it got this bad we'd do this and um and we had to trust our team not to leak this and try and take this out of context um but kind of this was really hard like as a leader i found that really tough but um but it's that's, our, that's what we're here for like so the spreadsheet was simple it was the explanation of it to the to the org um which was the hard bit and uh yeah i was i was pretty exhausted like so um and i'm sure like uh i can only think how tough it would be in a in a different organization Matt, this is when we ask you for a finance strategic moment 
And uh, this is a moment of strategic insight that you have experienced during the course of your career, something you saw in the numbers that led you to respond. It could be any time during the course of your career again. Anything come to mind? Yeah, yeah. So I'll, um, I'll probably explain one of my biggest ever mistakes. <laughs> if I, I, I won't blow my trumpet to say something amazing we did. Um, we bought a business um, before the financial part of a business actually before the financial crisis and um we uh we we bought this business thinking like it wasn't i mean it was, it was a it's large large business with a lot of people who had their jobs in this business and uh and my job as the analyst was to put a spreadsheet together to do some scenarios to say like okay like you know we could be going into a recession we could be hit by regulation uh, we could have competition, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Like, so, okay, Matt, you're a smart analyst. Why, why don't you pump this through a spreadsheet and see how bad it could get for this business? And like, would it still be a good acquisition? Like, would it survive, right? So you basically start modeling downside scenarios. And, um, and I, I was pretty awesome with spreadsheets back then. And I came up with an amazing spreadsheet that said, yeah, look, like if you overlay this thing and then this thing and then this thing, like, yeah, it's going to be tough, but actually the business should be able to survive and come out the other side, right? You know, go down this big dip and like, but actually like, you know, it'll last a year, maybe two, but actually we'd come out of this uh, as a as a, as a viable, good business. So yeah, like this is a, we should do this. What, what I didn't realize as a, you know, 20 something guy who'd not been through a crisis before was just when you go down, if you imagine, if you're a listener, just imagine like the curve of like cash going down and then up. Like um, when you hit the bottom of that curve, you don't really price in the spreadsheet how that feels, right? And um, and how like whilst rationally the spreadsheet tells you what decisions you should make, like at that time when you're going down that curve, like it's pretty hard as a human to act rationally, right? So what I learned was that if you paint a downside scenario, don't think that like as the curve goes down and it starts to flatten that everyone knows that it's about to flatten and go up, right? And um, so what I was very mindful of in this, because uh, what happened in that business is it, it hit the, it started going down the curve, hit the bottom, and then people thought this, this business is too tough and they closed the doors. Everyone lost their jobs and they shut the business. So basically, um, that was a mistake. That was, that was, that was, that was stupid. As in, like my 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 choice was to recommendation to do that was wrong, right? So um, so if I was looking at that again, I would be like, you need to price in like the human human fear factor that goes into those situations. It's not just of the people operating the business, but it's the investors in the business, the various stakeholders. So, for example, if if a financial services or a a bank starts really struggling, like it's very hard for that thing to recover, right? Because the general like customer mindset and regulator mindset on there is like it's pretty nervous, right? And um, so I feel like it's easy to be naive with a spreadsheet. Basically. So I'm always like mindful of this now when we look at when we look at the scenario planning. And I was pretty mindful of that going into COVID. When we return, Matt Briars enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, 
we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. And if you could go back in time and just give yourself one piece of advice as to uh, at that place in time when you first take on those responsibilities, the first month, the first quarter, what is it that you'd tell yourself? Um, it was actually what the two founders told me. Um, uh, pretty much three months into the uh, role where like you create two, two amazing individuals, both very strong minded. Um, and uh, I was a naturally brought up as a people pleaser. I was a consultant, right? So like, you know, customers always right guys, you know, tell it how it is, but do it in a nice way. Right. And, um, and, uh, and they both sat me down one day and said, look, Matt, stop trying to align us or like uh, trying to get consensus, like take our input and just make, make up your mind and get on with it. <laughs> and, um, and stop, you know, like you've hired you cause you're smart enough, just have the confidence and conviction to like do what you think is the right thing to do. And, uh, and trust us, like if we think it's crazy, we'll stop you, but like, you're probably going to be as right as anyone. And, um, and I think I just, uh, probably had too much baggage from my consulting days, which, you know, it comes with a lot of great things, but of just trying to bring a, a huge consensus of, of, uh, with me. And, uh, whereas actually I should have just think, you know, like I've got some confidence here and I should be, should be kind of, uh, have this conviction to say, look, I think this is the right thing to do. And then from that moment, they kind of challenged me on that. I was like, it just liberated me, you know, to, to move much faster and just frankly enjoy enjoy my life a lot more, you know? So, um, I think like it's very hard advice to give yourself or like have the confidence to do, but like I was lucky I was supported by these, these, these guys and, and, and the team around me, but, um, that was, that was it. Yeah. Sounds like got you off on the right foot for sure. Sure. Um, we always like to ask our guests to reflect a little bit on the personal side. If they were to tell us we're going to ask for a habit or part of your daily routine, uh, not on the professional side, but on the personal side, is there something that you do that you believe has contributed, however, to your success professionally? Something that's kept you either on a even keel or something that's um, allowed you to function highly as this job demands? Um, so I am outrageously and inconveniently competitive. So I flick-flacked between loads of sports as a kid and um, and then most recently, like, uh, cycling and golf, All right? So kind of a little cliche, maybe. But um, I kind of try and do that before work every day or somehow in my life I have this, like, uh, um, I have to be competing at something. Uh, my, my worry is actually that if I don't compete outside work that it might turn up in the in the office <laughs> so um so i'm pretty humble at work and i'm hopefully quite chill but uh but i'm fiercely competitive on the on the 
on the was on the bike now on the uh, on the golf course and and i think like just knowing that that's my nature is uh like it i have, I have a young youngish family uh, i'm incredibly fortunate that like uh my my wife joe does you know helps me out so much and, with family but like i've got to balance family and work and, and maybe this sport on the side should should be on a back burner but i know that if i don't do it i'll turn into a monster so like i'm really lucky they support me in doing that now what that means is i try and do like an hour or 45 minutes of something in the morning like it's no longer a lot of cardio or a race it's it might be like some kind of practice or something but i just have to do that if i don't do that in my life i just get grumpy and uh think so and then i try not to like I'm very impressed by CFOs and peers of mine that spend so much time reading around, uh, reading around the subjects and, and work, but I'm, I'm a pretty, I, when I get out of work, I tend to switch off and not in, you know, like, uh, not, not read too much around the subject and, uh, not, not spend too much immersing my whole life in it. Cause like, uh, there's only so much you can do. Like, uh, I always feel a bit underwhelming, like, you know, I, I am envious of these people that are so familiar with everything going on in the world. I am. It's just a trade-off. So we'd be interested to hear then what you might have for a book selection for us. It allows you to switch off. It doesn't have to be a business book. What what might that be? Oh man, I'd say the the uh, I read the book The Goal. I don't know if you've seen the book The Goal. It's a, it's like one of the few business books that I would recommend. And uh. And I, and I, why I quite liked it was like, it was, uh, it just put a, a very human way to like start thinking through a problem. And, um, and that's the only thing I, that's probably the one few books I, I would recommend. Um, uh, and then the other thing I really enjoyed was, uh, when I was at Bain, I was rubbish at, uh, rubbish at writing stuff, like kind of structured writing. And, um, this manager of mine, she was amazing, Cindy. That's her real name, but I'm not going to give you a second name. And she just gave me so much abuse for like not being very good at this. But she she really turned me turned me around. But I read this book, The Pyramid Principle, which was around um, concise and structured writing, like apples are apples and pears are pears. And and it, but ironically, it's around concise writing. But it's like a 200 page book about concise writing. So I think when you kind of read the first chapter, you'll probably get it. But it was a pretty cool. Uh, it was a pretty like I get pretty pretty hell bent now on structure. I get a little little anal about that stuff. So. Well, that's great, uh, great choice. We haven't had it before. The pyramid structure. The goal is quite popular among finance executives. There's something about that book. It's uh, and it's a novel, which is uh, right or it, which is so unusual. It stops you falling asleep. Like uh, like business books generally like. Uh, they're not the most exciting, but um, but uh, two two great selections for us. So thank you for those. Finally, we're up to our our last question, where we ask you to look forward. And I'm running long, so I apologize, Matt. Uh, but uh, some great answers, and we enjoyed speaking with you. Finally, look forward for us and tell us about your priorities for the next twelve months as a CFO. What are those priorities? Huh. I actually asked this a bit, and um. I'm a bit simplistic, so I. If I let you into a secret, it is probably the same as when I turned up in 2015, which is um, help us grow sustainably and um, and kind of 
you know, along the same two dimensions of like making sure transferwise this growth and future is sustainable and we don't don't run out of money or we're, we're sustainable. That's the first dimension. And the second dimension is that we don't don't mess it up, right? Don't screw up. So um like really I, I don't explain it this way that often, but fundamentally it's got to be on those dimensions. But like the whole level of challenge at transferwise is like and the complexity is like totally different. So you know we're offering products, different products all around the world now. So like the complexity of making sure we're sustainable um, for our customers and uh, we're understanding our growth. But understanding that is just way harder than it was um, five years ago. We're launching in Brazil, Abu Dhabi, um, all across Asia, um, new products in the US. It's it's pretty amazing, like the, the complexity here of solving the same problem. And then on the on the kind of don't screw up, like we're you know we're 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 just a whole new level of regulatory focus and complexity around the world than we were five years ago. You know we used to be regulated by one regulator. Now we're probably hitting twenty regulators soon, excluding the forty-eight states in the U.S. that regulate us, right? And the this this uh this level of complexity of just trying to meet those same two objectives that makes life like keeps keeps me on my toes. So like um I. You know, kind of in a luxurious point of one, really not moving beyond those two objectives for probably ten years, to be honest. And uh, just the just the challenge gets slightly harder every day. You know, transferwise is like you go back to this mission. You know, we're we're so early morning in what we're trying to do. Like, you know, two hundred there's two hundred billion dollars that goes to you know gets charged to customers. Like, we're saving a billion of it, right? Maybe two, right? We're like one percent of the problem solved. So um, we've got a long way to go. Matt Breyers, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks, Jack. And thanks for having me, everyone. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.